Good evening and welcome to Paranormal or What podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Ford. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a fantastic Christmas and New Year. I'm, I must apologise for being away for a while, but we had various cases of COVID and very nasty viruses going around the family over the last few weeks. And I have had lots of horrible colds, which made me sound like a very snotty type of Pinocchio. So I did think it was probably best until I sounded fairly normal before I did the next episode. So here I am. And without further ado, I'll introduce you to tonight's episode. We're going to be having a look at some scary folklore this evening, some mysterious creatures that exist in the dark shadows of the night and are hidden in Icelandic or Indonesian or Native American folklore. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about skinwalkers, the rake, the orang bunyan, and the huldu folk. So, tighten your seatbelts, sit back in that comfy chair with your tot of something hot and fiery, relax, and get ready to be scared out of your wits. The first legendary creature we're going to talk about is the skinwalker. In Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess or disguise themselves as an animal. The term is never used for healers. In the Navajo language, Yi Nadlushi translates to, by means of it, it goes on all fours. While perhaps the most common variety seen in horror fiction by non-Navajo people, the Yi Naldlushi is one of several varieties of skinwalkers in Navajo culture. Navajo witches, including skinwalkers, represent the antithesis of Navajo cultural values, while community healers and cultural workers are known as medicine men and women, or by other positive nurturing terms in the local indigenous language, witches are seen as evil, performing twisted ceremonies and manipulating magic in a perversion of the good works medicine people traditionally perform. In order to practice their good works, traditional healers learn about both good and evil magic. Most can handle the responsibility, but some people can become corrupt and choose to become witches. The legend of the skinwalkers is not well understood outside of Navajo culture, mostly due to reluctance to discuss the subject with outsiders. Traditional Navajo people are reluctant to reveal skinwalker law to non-Navajos or to discuss it at all among those they do not trust. Adrian Keane, Cherokee Nation activist and founder of the blog Native Appropriations, has written... What happens when people like Rowling pull this in is we as a native people are now opened up to a barrage of questions about these beliefs and traditions, but these are not things that need or should be discussed by outsiders at all. I'm sorry if that seems unfair, but that's how our culture survives. Animals associated with witchcraft usually include tricksters such as the coyote. However, it may include other creatures, usually those associated with death or bad omens. They might also possess living animals or people and walk around their bodies. Skinwalkers may be male or female. Skinwalker stories told among Navajo children may be complete life and death struggles that end in either the skinwalker or the Navajo killing the other. 
or partial encounter stories that end in a stalemate. Encounter stories may be composed as Navajo victory stories, with the skinwalkers approaching a hogan and being scared away. Non-native interpretations of skinwalker stories typically take the form of partial encounter stories on the road, where the protagonist is temporarily vulnerable, but then escapes from the skinwalker in a way not traditionally seen in Navajo stories. Sometimes Navajo children take European folk stories and substitute skinwalkers for generic killers like The Hook. Those pieces of information were found on the Wikipedia page under the title of Skinwalker. This next piece of information is by Marco Margaritoff on the allthatsinteresting.com website. The rest of America got its real first taste of the Navajo legend in 1996 when the Deseret News published an article titled Frequent Flyers. The story chronicled a Utah family's traumatising experience with the supposed creature that included cattle mutilations and disappearances, UFO sightings and the appearance of crop circles. But the family's most distressing encounter occurred one night just 18 months after moving onto the ranch. Terry Sherman, the father of the family, was walking his dogs around the ranch late at night when he encountered a wolf. But this was no ordinary wolf. It was perhaps three times bigger than a normal one, had glowing red eyes and stood unfazed by three close-range shots Sherman blasted into its hide. The Sherman family weren't the only ones to be traumatised on the property. After they moved out, several new owners experienced eerily similar encounters with these creatures, and today the ranch has become a hub of paranormal research that's aptly renamed Skinwalker Ranch. While paranormal re investigators probe the property with novel inventions, what they seek has a history that is centuries old. This is the legend of the Navajo skinwalker. So, what is a skinwalker? What does it look like? As the Navajo English Dictionary explains, the skinwalker has been translated for the Navajo Yi Nardlushi, as we said before. This literally means, by means of it, it goes on all fours. The Pueblo people, Apache and Hopi, also have their own legends involving the skinwalker. Some traditions believe that skinwalkers are born of a benevolent medicine man who abuses indigenous magic for evil. The medicine man is then given mythical powers of evil that vary from tradition to tradition, but the power all traditions mention is the ability to turn into or possess an animal. Or person. Other traditions believe a man, woman or child can become a skinwalker should they commit any kind of deep-seated taboo. The skinwalkers are described as being mostly animalistic physically, even when they are in human form. They are reportedly near impossible to kill except with a bullet or knife dipped in white ash. Little more is known about the purported being, as the Navajo are staunchly reluctant to discuss it with outsiders, and often even amongst each other. Traditional belief portends that speaking about the malevolent beings is not only bad luck, but makes their appearance all the more likely. There have been cases, actually, um, I diversify from the piece I'm reading where I, I've heard lots of stories of skinwalkers being seen by people riding through the desert in their cars and they will look out of the side of their car window and they will see one of these creatures running by the side of the car and keeping up with them no matter how fast they go. That must be utterly terrifying. Now, back to the piece. 
1996, a couple of outsiders were introduced to the legend after a series of inexplicable events occurred at their new ranch. So we're back to Skinwalker Ranch now. Terry and Gwen Sherman first observed UFOs of varying sizes hovering above their property. Then seven of their cows died or disappeared. One was reportedly found with a hole cut into the centre of its left eyeball. Another had its rectum carved out. The cattle the Shermans did find dead were both surrounded by an odd chemical smell. One was found dead in a clump of trees. The branches above appeared to have been cut off. One of the cows that vanished had left tracks in the snow that suddenly stopped. If it's snow, it's hard for a 1,200 or 1,400 pound animal to just walk off without leaving tracks or to stop and walk backwards completely and never miss their tracks, Terry Sherman said. It was just gone. It was very bizarre. Perhaps most terrifying were the voices Terry Sherman heard while walking his dogs late one night. Sherman reported that the voices spoke in a language he didn't recognise. He estimated that they came from about 25 feet away, but he couldn't see a thing. His dogs went berserk, barked and ran back hastily to the house. After the Shermans sold their property, these incidents only continued. UFO enthusiast and Las Vegas realtor Robert Bigelow bought the ranch for $200,000 in 1996. He established the National Institute for Discovery Science on the grounds and put up substantial surveillance. The goal was to assess what exactly had been going on there. On March 12, 1997, Bigelow's employee, biochemist Dr Colm Kelleher, spotted a large humanoid figure perched in a tree. Detailed in his book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, the creature was 20 feet off the ground and about 50 feet away. Kelleher wrote, The large creature that lay motionless, almost casually in the tree. The only indication of the beast's presence was the penetrating yellow light of the unblinking eyes as they stared fixedly back into the light. Kelleher fired at the supposed skinwalker with a rifle, but it fled. It left claw marks and imprints on the ground. Kelleher described the evidence as signs of a bird of prey, maybe a raptor print, but huge and from the depth of the print, from a very heavy creature. This was only a few days after another unnerving incident. The ranch manager and his wife had just tagged a calf before their dog began acting strangely. They went back to investigate 45 minutes later and in the field in broad daylight found the calf and its body cavity empty, said Kelleher. Most people know if an 84-pound calf is killed, there is blood spread around. It was as if all the blood had been removed in a very thorough way. The distressing activity continued well into the summer. Three eyewitnesses saw a very large animal in a tree and also another large animal at the base of the tree, continued Kelleher. We had videotape. Nevertheless, the research on Skinwalker Ranch is more sophisticated and secretive than ever. Ultimately, Bigelow and his research team experienced over 100 incidents on the property, but couldn't amass the kind of evidence that scientific publication would accept with credulity. Bigelow sold the ranch to a company called Adamantium Holdings for $4.5 million in 2016. There are many stories about skimwalkers online in such forums as Reddit, these experiences commonly occur on Native American reservations and are allegedly only prevented by the blessings of medicine men. While it's difficult to discern just how truthful these accounts are, the descriptions are almost always the same. A four-legged beast with a disturbingly human, albeit marred face, and orange-red glowing eyes. 
Those who claimed to have seen these skinwalkers also said that they were fast and made hellish noise. Skinwalkers have crept back into popular culture through television shows, such as HBO's The Outsider and the History Channel's upcoming The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch documentary series, which is not upcoming anymore because it's been out and I've seen it and it's fantastic. Well, that was really interesting, wasn't it? What do you think about this skinwalker? Could it be a legend that has actually come to life? I know there have been a lot of stories about people allegedly seeing these creatures. And the mystery of Skinwalker Ranch is just epic. I'm wondering if the whole of Skinwalker Ranch is just in a massive portal. Because it seems to me that it's visited by Bigfoot, aliens, ghosts, um... You name it, I think it comes to Skinwalker Ranch. Dire wolves, these enormous wolves that are tearing apart some of the cattle. I tell you what, though, I'd really love to go to Skinwalker Ranch and witness some of this for myself. So, I'll leave it to you. Skinwalkers, legend, law or a terrifyingly real creature. The next legendary or mythical creature we're going to have a look at is the terrifying Wendigo, flesh eater of the forests. This is a piece I'm going to read out that was originally written by Kathy Weiser Alexander on the Legends of America website. In Minnesota's north woods, the forests of the Great Lake region and the central regions of Canada are said to live a malevolent being called a Wendigo, also spelled Windigo. This creature may appear as a monster with some human characteristics or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them monstrous. It is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed and the cultural taboos against such behaviours. Known by several names, Windigo, Wittigo, Wittico and Wittigo, each roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. This creature has long been known among the Algonquian Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, Salto, West Main Swampy Cree, Nascarpe and Innu peoples. They have described them as giants, many times larger than human beings. Although descriptions can vary somewhat, common to all these cultures is the view that the Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being strongly associated with winter, the north, coldness, famine and starvation. The Algonquian legend describes the creature as a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed, with missing lips and toes. The Ojibwe describe it. It was a large creature as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. According to the legends, a Wendigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In the past, this occurred more often when Indians and settlers found themselves stranded in the bitter snows and ice of the North Woods. 
Sometimes stranded for days, any survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalise the dead to survive. Other versions of the legend cite that humans who displayed extreme greed, gluttony and excess might also be possessed by a wendigo. Thus the myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. Native American versions of the creature spoke of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall that had once been human but had been transformed into a creature by magic. Though all of the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws and overly long tongues. Sometimes they are described as having sallow yellowish skin and other times they are covered with matted hair. The creature is said to have several skills and powers, including stealth, is a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory and can control the weather through dark magic. They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land, eternally seeking to fulfil their voracious appetite for human flesh, and if there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. The legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term Wendigo psychosis. Some psychiatrists consider it a syndrome that creates an intense craving for human flesh and a fear of becoming a cannibal. Ironically, this psychosis occurs within people living around the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter in individuals who are isolated by heavy snow for long periods. The initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual develops a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo monster. People who have Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them as being edible. At the same time, they have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. The most common response when a person showed signs of Wendigo psychosis was a curing attempt by traditional native healers. In past cases, if these attempts failed and the possessed person began to threaten those around them or to act violently or antisocially, they were executed. There have been reports regarding this psychosis dating back hundreds of years. A 1661 Jesuit relations document stated, What caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake, namely that the men deputed by our conductor to summon the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria nor frenzy but have a combination of all these species of disease which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children and even upon men like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey and the more greedily the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. Another documented case occurred in 1878, when a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta, named Swift Runner, suffered one of the worst cases known. Swift Runner was a trader with the Hudson's Bay Company, who was married and the father of six children. In 1875, he served as a guide for the North West Mounted Police. 
During the winter of 1878-79, to Swift Runner and his family were starving, along with numerous other Cree families. His eldest son was the first to die of starvation, and at some point Swift Runner succumbed to Wendigo psychosis. Though emergency food supplies were available at Hudson's Bay Company post, some 25 miles away, he did not attempt to travel there. Instead, he killed the remaining members of his family and consumed them. He eventually confessed and was executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. A Wendigo allegedly made several appearances near Rususu in northern Minnesota from the late 1800s through the 1920s. Every time it was reported, an unexpected death followed, and finally it was seen no more. Another well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, an O.G. Cree chief and medicine man known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos during his lifetime. Some of these creatures were said to have been sent by enemy shamans and others were members of his band who had been taken with the insatiable, incurable desire to eat human flesh. In the latter case, family members usually asked Fiddler to kill a very sick loved one before they turned Wendigo. Fiddler's brother, Peter Flett, was killed after turning Wendigo when the food ran out on a trading expedition. Hudson's Bay Company traders, the Cree and missionaries knew the Wendigo legend, though they often explained it as mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the company's records. In 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He ultimately was granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving the news of this pardon. Among the Asinibuan, the Cree and the Ojibwe, a satirical ceremonial dance is sometimes performed during times of famine to reinforce the seriousness of the Wendigo taboo. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as the Native Americans came into greater and greater contact with Western ideologies. However, Wendigo creature sightings are still reported, especially in northern Ontario, near the cave of the Wendigo, and around Kenora, where traders have allegedly spotted it, trackers and trappers for decades. Many still believe that the Wendigo roams the woods and the prairies of northern Minnesota and Canada. Many have given Kenora, Ontario, Canada, the title of Wendigo Capital of the World, Sightings of the creatures in this area have continued well into the new millennium. My goodness, I may be staying clear of those places. I really do not fancy being eaten for tea by anybody of a a mentally ill capacity or by a terrifying creature called the Wendigo. What do you make of it? I really hope that it's not real. Don't you? Our next terrifying urban legend creature is the rake. We've all heard of the rake, a terrifying white creature with glowing eyes. But it's one of those stories that makes you think, I'm sure it's real, but then there's also part of me that thinks, I've heard it somewhere on social media, so let's have a look. Is it a true story? Is it a real creature? Or is it all made up? Here is a piece of research by Jacob Greers on thecultureCrush.com 
let's see what Jacob has to say on the matter of the rake. The nature of storytelling today is much more complicated than simply listening to an engaging speaker. To explore this a little further, here is a legend you might have heard around the glow of a campfire, the unnerving tale of the rake, sometimes described as a hairless dog or a naked man. The rake gets its name from the long rake-like claws it has on its hand. According to the tale, the earliest reference to the rake comes from a mariner's log dated 1691. In it, the mariner claims that the rake took everything and demanded that the crew, which had landed in the New World only weeks prior, leave and never return. A Spanish journal entry dated 1880 also purportedly references the rake, saying, I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. I see his eyes when I close mine. They are hollow, black. They saw me and pierced me. His wet hand. I will not sleep. His voice. The rake began to attract attention in 2003 after reported sightings of the creature in the northeastern United States spurred local media coverage. The vast majority of these sightings seemed to be from upstate New York, and though there was an alleged one-off sighting of the creature in Idaho, it was said to be native to the northeast. In 2006, a group of internet sleuths began working to compile records of the rake. At one point, the organisation claimed to have two dozen documents dating from the 12th century to the present day, including the records from the Mariner's Log and the Spanish Journal entry. As the story goes, the government ordered a media blackout on the rake. All media attention ceased and most of the records were destroyed. However, sightings have persisted, with people coming forward constantly to tell stories of their encounters of the rake online. Online forums, with their ability to nurture subcultures, anonymously interact with others, and collaborate across great distances, are the perfect place for stories like this to develop and spread. Message boards, websites such as Reddit and 4chan, where individuals can find subsections dedicated to whatever their interests are, no matter how esoteric, are where many of these stories originate. A user on the popular subreddit, Humanoid Encounters, a subsection of the site dedicated to the specific topic of real encounters with paranormal creatures, tells his story from 14 years prior when he fell asleep in his living room and began to hear weird slapping sounds. I hid my head under the blanket and stayed as still as possible. I could see a faint silhouette through the fabric. It looked like a hairless dog with a warped body with long distorted arms. The creature walked across the floor and crawled out of sight. I could only assume it had gone up the steps. I didn't sleep at all. I held still and refused to allow myself to move until dawn. My mother had come down the steps confused and a bit aggravated. She'd asked me to come upstairs and look at the wall. The walls had been covered with long scratches. The distance between the marks was large. The hands must have been at least six inches wide. We moved within the following weeks and it wasn't until four years ago that I heard of the rake. Another user on the subreddit told a similar tale, saying, I woke up at 3am to the feeling of something watching me. I felt extremely uneasy. I rolled over to look around the room and my eyes locked onto something standing beside my mum. It was extremely tall but looked as if it had a broken back and couldn't stand up completely. 
It was slouched over and had extremely pale skin and bones, sticking out under the skin everywhere due to how skinny it was. It had long claws hanging from both hands. Its face was sunken in and eyes were completely black holes. A few greasy hairs were visible on its head. It had no clothes but also no genitals or nipples. These stories are downright terrifying, so much so that while reading them I wanted to slam my laptop shut and toss it out the window while nervously reciting a few Hail Marys. But here's the thing. The rake is pure fiction. Not fake like ghosts or sightings of Bigfoot where many people are sceptical, yet their existence cannot be definitively dis disproven. We know for sure the rake is fake, like for 100% certain fake. It was a group on the message board 4chan that brought the creature into existence in 2005 when one suggested they work together to create a new monster. In fact, the rake's invention is so well documented that we even have some notes on the creature's creation. For example, we know that the group was originally toyed with different names for their new terror, including Operation Crawler. As time went by, the monstrosity began to resemble what we know today as the rake. Here's what we've got so far. Humanoid, about six feet tall when standing, but usually crouches and walks on all fours. It has very pale skin. The face is blank, as in no nose, no mouth. However, it has three solid green eyes, one in the middle of its forehead and the other two on either side of its head, towards the back, usually seen in front yards in suburban areas. Usually just watches the observer but will stand up and attack if approached. When it attacks, a mouth opens up, as if a hinged skull that opens at the chin. It reveals many tiny but dull teeth. Stories of the rake still continue to be shared. Eventually, they've made their way into more mainstream horror communities like Creepypasta and Unexplained Mysteries both websites dedicated to sharing horror stories and digital urban legends. So, what do we think about the rake? Well, there is a mode of thinking that says if enough people believe in something, then they can create it from the energy that's used out of believing it. The same was said of Slenderman. The reason I question it is because I have seen some pretty incredible videos on YouTube where people have claimed to capture videos of the rake. And there was something about these videos that didn't seem fake. They seemed terrifying. And they made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I can tell you. So, is the rake still fake? Or has it been willed into being by many, many people believing in it? I'll leave it up to you to decide and hope that you never have the misfortune of meeting it yourself. And now we come on to the Orang Bunyan. This is what Wikipedia has to say about them. In Malaysian, Bruneian and Indonesian folklore, Bunyan people, or Orang Bunyan, are supernatural beings said to be invisible to most humans, except those with spiritual sight. While the term is often translated as elves, it literally translates to hidden people or whistling people. Orang Bunyan are described as beautiful, dressed in ancient Southeast Asian style and nearly identical to humans in appearance. 
Some mythological accounts describe the lack of a philtrum. Modern depictions of Orang Bunyan deviate from the traditional folklore by including elf-like features, pointed ears, high fantasy-influenced attire, or modern Minan Kebao long-cut clothing. Orang Bunyan are said to inhabit the deep forests or high mountains in Malay Peninsula, Sumatra and Borneo, far from human contact, as well as near human communities, and are even said to share the same houses as human families. According to legend, their social structure is similar to that of humans in the ancient Malay Peninsula, with families, clans and royalty. As with other mythical beings in Indonesian folklore, Orang Bunyan often have supernatural powers and must be appeased with certain rituals and customs before humans are allowed to trespass areas which they inhabit. Orang Bunyan are generally regarded as benevolent, befriending and assisting humans, particularly magicians and shamans. They are said to be able to intermarry with humans and bear invisible children. According to some tales, men had married Orang Bunyan women, but later decided to leave the Bunyan community and return to the families they had left behind. However, after returning to human society, they found that many years had passed and everyone they knew had died. Gosh, well, they sound mystical and at once terrifying. I was watching an episode of Paranormal Caught on Camera today, which drew my attention to the Orang Bunyan. And some men had gone into the forest or the jungle in Indonesia in search of these creatures and caught a video of them on the camera. They looked terrifying and were chasing the men out of the jungle. I believe they were never the same again, so be careful what you go looking for. And the final legendary mythical creatures we're going to listen to tonight are the Huldu folk of Iceland. According to Wikipedia, the Huldu folk, or hidden people, are elves in Icelandic and Faroese folklore. They are supernatural beings that live in nature. They look and behave similarly to humans, but live in a parallel world, and they can make themselves visible at will. In Faroese folktales, hidden people are said to be large in build, their clothes are in old grey, and their hair black. Their dwellings are in mounds and rocks, and they are also called elves. Some Icelandic folktales caution against throwing stones, as it may hit the hidden people. The term Huldu folk was taken as a synonym of Alfar, or elves, in 19th century Icelandic folklore. John Arneson found that the terms are synonymous, except Alfar is a pejorative term. Conrad von Maurer contends that Huldu folk originates as a euphemism to avoid calling the Alfar by their real name. There is, however, some evidence that the two terms have come to be taken as referring to two distinct sets of supernatural beings in contemporary Iceland. Katrin Sontag found that some people do not differentiate elves from hidden people, while others do. A 2006 survey found that 54% of respondents did not distinguish between elves and hidden people. 20% did and 26% said they were not sure. Terry Gunnell writes, Different beliefs could have lived side by side in multicultural settlement Iceland before they gradually blended into the latter-day Icelandic Alfar and Huldu folk. 
He also writes, Uldu folk and Alfar undoubtedly arose from the same need. The Norse settlers had the Alfar, the Irish slaves had the hill fairies or the good people. Over time they became two different beings, but really they are two different sets of folklore that mean the same thing. There are four Icelandic holidays considered to have a special connection with hidden people. New Year's Eve, 13th night, January 6th, Midsummer night and Christmas night. Elf bonfires are a common part of the holiday festivities on Twelfth night. There are many Icelandic folk tales about elves and hidden people invading Icelandic farmhouses during Christmas and holding wild parties. It is customary in Iceland to clean the house before Christmas and to leave food for the Huldu folk on Christmas. On New Year's Eve it is believed that the elves move to new locations and Icelanders leave candles to help them find their way. On Midsummer's night, folklore states that if you sit at a crossroads, elves will attempt to seduce you with food and gifts. There are grave consequences for being seduced by their offers but great rewards for resisting. Interestingly, like elves, Huldu folk also live outdoors, making their homes in Iceland's rocks and cliffs. According to a study done in 2006, 32% of Icelanders believe the existence of these beings to be possible, while 24% believe their existence is either likely or an outright certainty. There have been many cases of superstition when Huldu folk have been attributed to um, bad things happening, especially to do with the building of roads or construction. And often people, um, spiritual people, will be brought out to try and appease the Huldu folk if new roads need to be built or new constructions are to be made. Here is the one, one of the more interesting stories that I've found. And I found this on the website called theportalist.com forward slash Huldu folk, the truth behind Iceland's obsession with elves. And the story goes like this. The most famous story involves Alsholvigur, Elf Hill Road a road that was at one point intended to run through Althol, a hill where elves are believed to live. Construction was begun on this road on two separate occasions, but each time a collection of misfortunes and thefts prevented it from being completed. A widespread belief that elves and Hulduford live within the rocks and mountainsides of Iceland sometimes complicates things for non-Icelandic organisations trying to set up shop. Sometimes new construction will be halted by concerned Icelanders who wish to protect the habitats of elves and Hulduford. For instance, in 1982, over a hundred Icelanders protested at a NATO base and demanded to inspect the area for any elf dwellings. In 2004, Alcoa, a company that specialises in aluminium, had to halt construction of a smelter and hire a government official to inspect the area for elven ruins. While much of the world likes to poke fun at the idea of wacky Icelanders getting worked up over fairy tales, belief in elves and huldu folk may be about more than simple superstition. It's possible that belief in the supernatural in Iceland may be related to modern-day environmentalism. So, what do you think? Huldu folk. A wacky whim of the Icelanders? Or real elven folk? I think the only way to find out is for me to hop on a plane to Iceland and go and search it out for myself. One day, I hope to do that, and I'll let you know what and who I find.
Well, that's all for tonight, everyone. And what an episode it was. I really enjoyed finding out more about those terrifying, mythical, legendary creatures, and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you have any paranormal stories to share, please email them to me at paranormalorwhatpodcast at outlook.com. That's paranormalorwhatpodcast at outlook.com. Alternatively, send me your story via anchor.fm forward slash paranormal or what podcast forward slash message. I really am hoping to be able to put together a whole episode with listener stories. I've got three or four on the burner at the moment, but I'd really love to put a few more on. And don't forget, you can now listen to Paranormal or What on the following podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Outcast, Breaker, CastBox, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. And one of the most important things, dear listener, is don't forget to rate and review the podcast for me on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. It really will help to grow the show and make it more well listened to. And the more well listened to it is, the more podcasts I can do. So, remember to give it five stars if you like it. I really depend on those five star ratings. So what more is there to say? I look forward to snuggling down with you next week with some more spooky stories, a comfy chair and a tot of something fiery. So, remember, together we can figure it out. Good night.